0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk
1: show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming off, we kick off True North's Conservative Leadership Series with a sit down interview with Conservative leadership candidate Jean Charette. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello, and welcome to a rare weekend edition of The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show on True North. I know we've been focusing on all sorts of elections all over the place lately. The Ontario election, now the Alberta UCP leadership race. But we want to do something that we promised months ago when the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race first started. And it involved waiting until that membership cut off. So we knew exactly who was going to be in the race. And we wanted to go and sit down with all of the leadership candidates one-on-one, have an in-depth, wide-ranging conversation about what it is that they want to bring to the Conservative Party of Canada and also to the leadership of the country because ultimately these people aren't just auditioning to run the party but they all want to be the Prime Minister of Canada in a couple of years and we've tried to do interviews with the candidates as they've announced and we've managed to talk to five of the six but this is a new series that we're doing on the Andrew Lawton Show called uh, very uncreatively the Conservative Leadership Series and to kick it off I'm sitting down with Jean Charest the former Quebec Premier and also the former leader of the federal PC party, which has now been folded into the Conservative Party of Canada. I sat down with Jean Charest last week for, as I mentioned, a wide-ranging conversation. We covered a lot of ground, and if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to go and look back to my first interview with him a couple of months back when he announced his campaign. And there are some things in there that I talked about, so I didn't bring up in this interview. So if you're wondering, why didn't you ask about X, that's why. So I would encourage you to have a look at that interview. As well, but without further ado, my conversation with Jean Charest, Monsieur Charest. We spoke right away, actually, when you had launched your campaign, and obviously things have changed a little bit now. We know hundreds of thousands of people have joined the Conservative Party for you and and some of your other competitors in this race. How are you feeling now, with the membership drive complete and just a, a couple of months to go?
0: I feel very good about where we are right now. We followed the game plan that we set out for ourselves, Andrew. And it focused a lot on what determines who wins or loses, and that's the points per riding. And it is complicated to follow for those who aren't initiated. But it's a, as you know, it's a preferential ballot, mail-in ballot. You mark your first, second, third, fourth choice, and then it's a hundred points per riding, no matter how many members there are in the riding, as long as there's a minimum of a hundred. And so we, our whole view of the campaign is how do we make sure that our vote is efficient, that it actually allows us to get the number of points required to win, and we're within that striking distance. The other thing about the campaign that we know from past campaigns is that the front runner, unless the front runner wins on the first ballot, they lose, which was the story of Bernier in 17 and of McKay in 20. Or 21 I should say and then and then that's where we are right now I mean we're we're within that striking distance we're feeling very good about where we are and what I especially like about our campaign is that our support is broad-based it isn't just one part of the country and it will be stronger in certain parts obviously and I have adversaries will be stronger in other areas of the country but we do have a broad-based
1: uh, support. That point system is meant to ensure that, that you can't just sign up in the conservative heartland, yeah. 100,000 members and, and sweep to victory or, or anywhere else in the country. And, and your whole campaign has really been, in, in my assessment anyway, predicated on that idea of electability. Your, your slogan is built to win. Yeah. You're talking about the importance of, of winning a, a national majority government. Conservatives heard that in 2020, though, from a candidate whose primary pitch was electability, the seats in the so-called vote-rich GTA and in Quebec, and that came at the expense of a lot of those red meat conservative ideals that, that a lot of people in the party wanted. So if someone's looking at you, how are you different than Aaron O'Toole in making this claim that you can actually deliver when he made that identical claim leading yeah. into last year's election? Well, the first thing I'd point to is track
0: record. I do have a track record of uh, of winning. And in the places that count, in urban areas in particular, uh, where I have run campaigns, I've been successful. And so I, I have no doubt in my mind that I'd have that ability. And what we're talking about is winning in the GTA where there's 53 seats. Uh, conservatives have only four, zero seats in the lower mainland of British Columbia. Zero seats on the Island of Montreal. But then 32-block MPS in Quebec, 32. That's a big chunk of seats that I will win with Conservative MPs who will will help us win a majority government. And we're starting from a strong base in Western Canada that uh, we also have to acknowledge. I mean, that's a real source of strength for our party. The other thing about this leadership race, and for me, is that this is about conservatism. It's uh, and it has to be about not just electing the new leader. You're right. It's about winning the next campaign. There's no you know, we're not going anywhere if we elect a new leader who leads us down a path where there's actually a more narrow base. And But where is that new opening? Where is the future for us as a party? I am a big, big believer in conservative principles and values, and I think those values as we express them for the future are going to have a lot of resonance in the country. I know because it's what I've lived all my life politically, and I've been successful doing. But Canadians need to hear what it is that we're proposing and not be distracted by other things. And I'll boil it down to, to a few things. A, fiscal conservatism. There is a boulevard, literally a boulevard out there in Canada for a political, national political party who's fiscally conservative. Everyone in the country gets it that after COVID, this overhang of debt isn't going to just mm-hmm. go away. We have to deal with it. The second part is a strong national economic agenda and that's where i'm going to put the party we are going to focus on that will be our platform and that's what we're going to talk about in a national election campaign
1: and that will be very much a conservative can be. I'd like to talk about your fiscal platform in a moment, but I want to just touch on Western Canada, because you did mention it. And I think one of the biggest problems for any party is to take its base for granted. Yes, Yes, you know, you have members that have won there with 70% of the vote. But we also saw in the last election, the PPC get 14-15% in in some of those ridings. Albertans, as you know, uh, voted in favor of a referendum to challenge equalization. If you were the Prime Minister, how would you address the equalization question? And I'll give you a, a broadening of that the the general western alienation sentiments we see which are quite significant
0: the the sentiment of western alienation is something i worry about and it's one of the reasons why i'm running because it's something i'm familiar with and whether you take it from the angle of eastern canada and quebec in particular or western canada it's something that we should never just brush off as being a sentiment or a, a moment of uh, you know uh, of, of uh, frustration it's more than that it is a lot more than that and and I'm a big believer in our ability as a party to be that national voice that bridges east and west and on those issues now let's take equalization please which i'm familiar with because uh, I worked on changing the formula at least two times when I was in office as Premier of Quebec. To get more money for Quebec though? Well, a fair deal. It's, It's about getting a fair deal when you're in that office and I did my job as I think was expected. But Andrew, when we do that, and when I do that, I'm not working against another part of the country. Make it very clear. I never, I've never approached politics in that uh, zero sum approach of saying I win, you
1: lose. I think Albertans feel
0: it is that though that well, Quebec's yes. win is their loss. And Andrew, I know that, and I see, I do see that. You're right, and they see that. They, they see it that way. I think we need to review equalization, and Albertans are right to ask us to sit down and look at the overall deal and to make sure that it is fair for everyone. Fair for everyone means for them, of course, but also uh, for the rest of the country. And I'd be very open to making the adjustments that need to be made. I've done it in the past and uh, in a spirit of fairness, and I would do it in the future. And uh, and also for Western Canada, there's the whole issue of the development of resources, oil and gas and pipelines that are extremely important and for which I would be a very staunch ally. And one thing I, I, I can tell you about myself in Western Canada, my interest and my uh, you know, presence in Western Canada has never varied in time. It's never varied because of the number of votes, uh, either obtained or not, and it hasn't varied when I was Premier of Quebec or not, and it didn't vary when I left office. I was in Alberta very often because I like Alberta and I like the West, and I actually think uh, it's a part of Canada that is uh, is extraordinary with its entrepreneurs, uh, its entrepreneurs, and its its vitality. It's a you know, it's energy and and all sense of the word. So uh, I'm going to continue to be a Prime Minister, not just for uh, one part of the country, I want to be a Prime Minister for Alberta.
1: How do you champion oil and gas development when you have two provinces in particular, British Columbia and Quebec, which have been very resistant to that development? Because obviously, I'm assuming as a Federalist, you don't want to impose on provinces, but at the same time, not getting it built is letting these provinces stymie the development in other sectors, in other areas.
0: That's where I hope to make uh, the biggest contribution, Andrew, because I have the experience of being a premier, and I have a a long experience also of being involved in federal and provincial politics. I think it would be a breath of fresh air to have a prime minister who's been in that job and knows how to make the system work. Energy East is a good example. I was in favor of Energy East as I was in in favor of the rerouting of Line 9 for Enbridge, which got done, by the way, and it started under my government and allowed us to change the flow of oil that arrives to Eastern Canada. And I did the last pipeline in Quebec was done under my government. So I have the confidence that we can get it done. Energy East is an example. On Energy East, when I was in the private sector, I worked for TransCanada and my suggestion is that the Quebec pension fund buy part of the project. And had they done that early on, I think we would have had a very different uh, discussion and debate. The challenge we had on Energy East is that there was no champion of Energy East. The Prime Minister Trudeau never got up and said, I'm in favor of this project. And the pipeline I did in Quebec, it got done because I said, we're going to do it. I didn't say, maybe we'll do it. If, if no, we're going to do it and we'll do it right, but we need leadership. And Mr. Trudeau is doing not, nothing of that. I mean, on the economy, it's all, you know, by the, it's it's just a government by press release. Frankly, that's what it looks like on all, almost all issues. But on these issues in particular, it has cost the country a great price, and Western Canada a great price because of his lack of leadership. And that will change dramatically the day that I become Prime Minister of Canada.
1: You can't control, no Prime Minister can, other jurisdictions. You know, we could have the most gung-ho pro-Keystone government here, but we can't make Joe Biden want Keystone in the U.S. The same goes for for Quebec and British Columbia. So, So what do you offer to make them want it?
0: Well, you have to have different approaches that uh, allow you to address their issues and not make it a zero sum game. And the example I gave you on Energy East, I think, works in other parts of the country. What if First Nations or Indigenous uh, communities are uh, equity owners in the projects? You know, part of my policies is that I would create actually a, a state owned crown corporation that would allow uh, Indigenous communities to buy equity and have equity in projects and to push that even further. To allow them to own part of the
1: project. A lot of the elected bands are the ones most enthusiastic about these projects. Exactly.
0: So we have to continue down that path. We have to actually emphasize it, do more of it. And the same is is true in the ownership of the projects. You know, the pension funds, as I mentioned earlier, those are part of the new uh, approaches that we have to take that would allow projects to get done because people have a clear path between, you know, crossing the dots on a project of why we do it. Now the circumstances have changed also. The war in Ukraine has really shed a new Mm -hmm. light on the relevance of these projects and there's two aspects to it. One is security of supply which no one thinks about in normal times but governments have to think about
1: and the other one is
0: the the very cruel situation of us watching this war unfold in Europe and Europeans Mm -hmm. funding Russia by buying their oil and gas to attack Ukraine when we could be uh, a supplier and an ethical supplier. So those circumstances do make a, an added argument. Climate change is another argument. If, if climate change is as important as everyone thinks it is and especially environment groups, well they have to come to the table in a serious way and accept the fact that it is a good thing that Canadian natural gas go to Asia to replace uh, coal thermal plants. I mean that's it's just good common sense. But someone has to make that case <laughs> And right now, what we're suffering from with Mr. Trudeau is that he is not making that case. He has never stood in his place to say, this is what we should do. It's a good idea. I'm the prime minister of Canada, and I'm going to lead on this. And there's no big project that gets done unless the prime minister exercises some leadership. That's the reason. I think it's the main reason why we're not seeing movement on these
1: projects. On the environment, you've said you want to get rid of... Justin Trudeau's consumer-focused carbon tax, but you've also accepted that you would push for a price on carbon in some form. So what is your plan and how would it differ from Justin Trudeau's? Well, Justin Trudeau's plan
0: is uh, focused on consumers, and I think that's the wrong path. And I'm not alone in thinking that. The environmental commissioner put out uh, a report only a few days after I put out my policy paper saying that Mr. Trudeau's approach hurts small businesses and lower-income Canadians. The most efficient approach is the one I think Alberta's had since 2002, which is a levy on large emitters, who are the ones who are best positioned to uh, put forward the technology and the resources to reduce uh, carbon emissions and to do it on a good economic foot and sounding. and And that's why uh, that's the approach that I would take. Now, that's what we have in Quebec with a carbon trading system between.
1: Quebec and California, and it works and it's widely accepted. But I mean, conservatives always say that a regulation or a burden, a cost put on a business flows down to consumers, so it's still essentially affecting consumers. Well, the the question we have to ask ourselves
0: is what is the most efficient thing we can do to be able to an economic thing that will have the least impact on consumers and prices. Letting
1: the private sector sort it out is not an option. Well, well
0: it is. It it is a big, I mean, what I am doing and by putting it uh, an offering, uh, an option of putting it on large emitters is really putting it that on them to figure out how to do it best with the technologies. Now, my approach is also comprehensive. I want us to do carbon capture and storage. I want us to do uh, hydrogen, whether blue or green, and biofuels and small modular reactors. We have a magnificent project by four major provinces in Canada, which includes Saskatchewan, Alberta, Ontario, and New Brunswick on developing small modular reactors. That's part of my plan to get to zero emissions by 2050 and then planning the transition. And by the way, industry is there, Andrew. I mean, if you go to Alberta, the Pathways Project, which is a really a joint project by the major producers is a, a fantastic mm-hmm. private sector intelligent economically smart approach on how to do with uh, deal with reducing uh, carbon emissions and so those are the things that we have we have to be smart about it is what i'm saying and, uh, and if we are, we're going to economically come out of it in good shape. In
1: 2019, the Conservative platform had a proposal for a balanced budget law that would compel the government to keep the books balanced. We're looking at deficits that have predict- been predicted in Canada for the next 50 years now. I, I don't yeah. think anyone is expecting a balanced budget in the first year of a first mandate of, of any government. But where do you even start when the situation is like this? And, and what would your plan be? What would be your definitive target to get to a balanced budget if you were to take over. And and, and Andrew,
0: you're you're right. I mean, reaching a balanced budget should be something that we do in an orderly fashion, and we don't have to break everything uh, to get there. That's not true. And past experiences taught us that. You know, the Christian government cut cash transfers 40% to the provinces in one single swoop and caused major damage to our healthcare systems throughout the country. And then Lucien Bouchard in Quebec, retired nurses and doctors. What have we learned from that? What have I learned when I was in government is the virtues of discipline. And so program spending was always below nominal growth in the economy, which means that every year you gain new space and it becomes virtuous. But, you know, that approach requires a lot of discipline. It means that year after year after year, you have to have to have the ability to apply that and maintain it, which I did. And with very, very significant results. And so that's the kind of approach. On debt, for example, we did something very interesting. We created something called the Generations Fund. So we took the money from non-renewable resources, water rights, mining rights, and we put it into a fund to reduce the size of the debt. In the public's mind, it allows them to make the link between that revenue and reducing debt. It's still working now. And it's been one of the things that the credit rating agencies love the most in terms of what my government did. And, and I put that law in place in 2006. It's still operating today in 2022 and will in the future because that's, that's a very effective way of reducing debt, but doing it in a way that doesn't, again, break all, everything along the way. And, and in case of COVID, we could think of a COVID you know, approach that would allow us to deal with the COVID debt
1: and identify it and have us work at it in that fashion. You've been very clear about your position on the convoy, so I I don't need you to rehash that. But one thing that I find striking is that when you've brought this up in the debates, you've been booed by members of the audience, members of the Conservative Party. Is your position one that is welcome in the Conservative Party of Canada's membership right now, that this is, in your words, an illegal blockade? And, And if not, what does that mean for your future as someone who wants to lead that party?
0: I'm totally convinced that my position is welcome in the party. You know, in the rooms, we all have our supporters, and, and I have mine in Montreal, and, and other candidates have theirs in other rooms, and that's fine. But it, at the end of the day, one of the basic values of conservatism is the respect of the rule of law and law and order. It's, we're not the only party who believes in that, but I'll tell you, it's pretty much front and center of everything that conservatives believe in. And by the way, you know, if you want to live in a society that is free, that has freedoms, uh, the respect of laws is fundamental. I draw a very real distinction between that and those who protest and who legitimately protest and who have been frustrated, especially with these mandates of Mr. Trudeau that just seem to go on and on and on. I mean, I don't know why he kept insisting. Now he, he seems to have received the message. But frankly, the Trudeau government used, it's almost as though they used the mandate issue as a wedge issue in the country. Which, uh, from
1: my perspective, I think is unacceptable. Would you have voted for the Conservative motion to call on the government to end the mandates? I would have voted for it. I think it was time to end the mandates, yes. Because earlier on in the campaign, you said that it wasn't for politicians to make these decisions, but public health officials. So when did, in your view, it become something where politicians should be calling on those changes?
0: Well, it's very obvious right now. Just take what's happening in the country. All the provinces, without ex- almost without exception taken away all the mandates. I mean, if they've done it, and they're talking to the same scientist as the federal government, why has Mr. Trudeau not done it? At least not until now. Well, uh, that begs the question. Why? I think because he probably sees that politically there's an interest in him maintaining it or ha- had an interest in doing it. The fact of the matter is, to get back to the question on convoys, people in this country have a total right to protest and to express themselves. And we all know that a lot of us were very tired and frustrated from this COVID uh, episode and Mr. Trudeau didn't help the cause by fanning the flames and making these disparaging remarks and then disappearing and being missing in action. Frankly, the whole thing was such a mess and Canada looked ridiculous, you know, in, on the international scene through the whole episode. Uh, but there's a difference between that and illegal blockades. That's my point. My point is that. And no one is, should be allowed to block Critical infrastructure in the country, and I feel so strongly about it, Andrew. I would uh, legislate a, a law that would allow police to intervene very promptly, without having to go to courts to an injunction if there's an illegal blockade on critical infrastructure, and uh, and that's the point, and that's where I disagree with Mr. Podgyev. Yeah, you can't make laws in this land and treat them like a buffet table. If you're if you want to be a, a legislator, more so a leader of a party, a prime minister. Well, you have to accept the fact that you you need to respect the laws of the land. Should unvaccinated public servants be allowed to go back to work? I think they should. I think we're at the point now where we should uh, be able to relax uh, the criteria. I don't see, I don't, frankly, you know, at this point in COVID, as we look at where the world is, and I'm not saying it's always going to be that way, Andrew, we don't know. No, no one can really predict. But common sense and from what I see right now, you know, uh, there was an interesting episode in Quebec about the government of Quebec saying the people in the healthcare system, you have to get vaccinated mm-hmm. or we'll fire you. And they were tough and they were firm on it until the last two weeks before the cutoff and realized that uh, 15,000 people were not going to show up at work. And guess what? They changed their mind. There is something called reality. and uh, And in this case, I think we've reached the point now where we should resume a normal life.
1: Jean Charest, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. That'll do it. My interview with Jean Charest for the Conservative Leadership Series. Next week, we'll have my conversation with Patrick Brown, and we're going through all of the candidates, extending invitations to all of them. So hopefully within the next couple of weeks, you'll be able to see all of these interviews with different candidates, each one taking on, of course, a different form and flavor. But uh, thank you very much. And if you like this project and other work that True North is doing, please do head on over to donate.tnc.news, donate.tnc.news and show your support that way. Thanks very much. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all.
0: Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at
1: www.tnc.news.